Missed the show? No worries. We've got you covered on our podcast on point tonight. Is there a connection with that Markham mansion turned illegal casino? And why are so many Canadian politicians being sucked into those suspected of being involved with Chinese front groups for the Chinese government? Canadian governments are raising fees for their suppliers. What does it mean for you? And why will you get less choice as to what you buy? And we see these protests going on in Caledonia. What is the solution? And do these protesters actually speak for all Six Nations members? Let's get talking about that. What's your point? You just don't ever get to point. Am I getting through to you? That's the point. Do you understand? There is a point. That point where enough is enough. Here's Alex Pearson on Global News Radio. Listening. If this motion passes, the ability of the government to procure and purchase PPE, vaccines, and rapid test kits will be jeopardized, period, both on a domestic and international level. The motion threatens our negotiations and contracts, as well as our government's top priority, which is to protect Canadians from COVID-19. What a load of horse pucky. And here we are again with more games threatens, you know, from the uh, Liberals that if they have to be transparent about their handling of COVID-19, Canadians may not get vaccines or PPE. Ooh. Alex Pearson with you on this Monday, October 26. And uh, today is a lot of it about health with a bit of a theme today, which is transparency. And the question, you know, where is it? And I'll get to the games being played at the uh, federal level in just a second. But today we were supposed to learn about the possible announcement for rollbacks in Halton and Durham. And what was urgent on Friday, apparently not so urgent today. And maybe it has been diverted because of pushback from mayors and and, uh, in those regions, but also some of Ford's own MPPs. Because there are growing numbers of elected officials who are rightfully pushing back because they want data. They want to see transparency behind these decisions. And they basically want these health experts, you know, justify your shutdowns and show us proof of why it's necessary. Because if you look at the cases, and I know it was shocking over the weekend, we got over a thousand cases, but businesses in Toronto and the GTA have now been shut for over two weeks. So they're not driving the surge and yet they're the ones paying the price. And, And I get it. I get that Premier Ford is stuck between a rock and a hard place, but you know, The hospitals are not being overwhelmed. We don't have any accurate tracing. Um, We aren't flattening the curve at all, but we are we are flattening these business owners. It's just not a willy nilly uh, decision that we look at numbers going up and that's it. We, we can't do that. And as I've said, when the, the numbers are low and the uh, hospital capacity is low, I'll fight all day for home. I'll also fight all day for any region. But when they get up as high as, let's say, Peel, and we see a, an escalation or, or Toronto, you, you have to come to reality. Well, yeah, the reality is none of this makes sense. It just doesn't. I mean, if it can be justified, then show the proof. Because I don't, I don't see what we're doing now is working. And it's hard not to think that those in charge aren't making this thing up as they go along. Because this shutdown was supposed to, it was supposed to last 28 days. And the numbers aren't going down. They're going way up. 
and it's beyond when the businesses were closed down. So I, look, I wouldn't even be surprised if it went longer. I mean, they extended it and came back. And if that is the case, then these businesses have a right to know. And they have a right to be shown data that backs it. And they deserve to have information as to how their lives are going to further be crushed by policies that really aren't being backed by data. I don't like this thing any, any more than the next guy. But I, I don't believe they have control of it because we know that Toronto has been tracing for what, three weeks, four weeks? And yet they're making all these draconian decisions. And if we don't get the data, you know, those in charge are, are not just going to see a revolt of, of mayors. They're going to start seeing a revolt of everyday people saying enough. You'll lose their confidence. And, and I actually think it's waning at this point. But We'll talk about it during the show because, again, are they making it up on the fly? Are they making these decisions based on science now? Or is it based on what plays well politically? But then you look at the Trudeau government. They also don't want to show their work again. And so last week, uh, we got the threat of a confidence vote over a finance committee. But now they've been pushing all day uh, against this conservative motion, which, by the way, just passed. But it calls for thousands of documents uh, by the opposition so that they can scrutinize the Liberals' handling of COVID response and, you know, make a, make sure that they've got a plan moving forward. Sounds pretty reasonable. I mean, it is the opposition's job to scrutinize. But then this morning, the Public Services and Procurement Minister, Anita Anan, came out and threatened, you know, oversight will not only, you know, hurt their ability to respond to Canadians, which is, like, stupid, but that companies making vaccines and PPE, well, they might stop supplying Canadians. This is not about politics. As we are in the middle of the second wave and the number of COVID cases continues to increase, this is not the time for this motion to be passed. This is not the time to threaten and weaken our relationships with our suppliers on whom Canadians' health and safety depends. Oh, give me a break. It'll never be the right time for this government, ever. And that is nothing more than a bunch of fear-mongering nonsense. It is dirty politics because this government darn well knows that they can get out their big black magic marker and black out sensitive details regarding companies. I mean, Lord knows they, they gave those black markers a very big workout during the WE documents. They basically colored them all in. So no company is being put at risk here. And we have the right to know. We have the right to know if the government in charge made mistakes. I mean, if everyone's going to point their finger at Donald Trump and talk about, well, look what he did. I mean, he played it down. Okay, well, our government ignored it altogether. I mean, maybe people should pay attention more here on this side of the border than constantly, you know, tuning into the hysteria of CNN about blah, what they did wrong. Because there's lots to judge here. And... I'd like to know, and I think we deserve to know, what's your plan for recovery? What's your plan to get us out of this mess? And instead, they're threatening Canadians that vaccines uh, ordered may not arrive. But as the health critic sees it, it's just another political stunt for an election. The fact that the Liberals were out today with a fairly hyperbolic, bombastic, ridiculous argument, I think really shows that they don't want to produce this document. I also think at this point, given the rhetoric, I think that they want an election. I um, I think that this is them pre-positioning for rationale on not producing the documents down the road um, and, and hoping for an election. 
That is Michelle Rimple Garner. And we know the mistakes have been, been made. We know that. We also know that right now all the attention is going to the provinces. So the last thing that the Trudeau government wants is for the attention to turn to them because for now, polling suggests that most people think the Trudeau government has done a glorious job and that's because they obsess over all things Trump. But if you actually pay attention to what's been going on here in your own country, then you know they've made some very big mistakes. I mean, they didn't just drop the ball in the beginning. They never even picked up the ball. They don't even know what a ball looks like. And they dragged their feet. They were very slow to respond. They downplayed the risk and then, of course, promised everyone, yeah, we're, we're prepared. But then over the weekend, I find this interesting because the health minister, Patty Haidu, seems to uh, have flip-flopped on a pretty major view that back in April, she chastised a reporter who asked about, remember, when someone asked, what about China? China lying to the world and what they knew about the virus. And she said to that reporter this. There's no indication that the data that came out of China uh, in terms of their infection rate and their death rate uh, was falsified in any way. And your question is feeding into the conspiracy theories that many people have been perpetuating on the, on the internet. And it's important to remember that there is no way to beat a global pandemic if we're actually not willing to work together as a globe. We will have to come up with a global solution to this virus. No country is an island. So that was back in April, where Patty Haidu and the entire Trudeau government, they were bending themselves into a, 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 a downward dog pretzel to defend China. Remember their adulation of China? was It was so actually gag-worthy that the Chinese government actually praised the Trudeau government. They praised the Trudeau government for not banning flights from China. I mean, really? Oh, you're doing a wonderful job, Canada. And we, and we took that as like a, an honor. And then over the weekend... On one of the political shows over at CTV, how'd you seem to be changing her tune? If China wasn't honest, then they uh, need to be held to account. What happened to the conspiracy theories? I mean, yes, they need to be held to account. They should be prosecuted and forced to pay. I mean, it's about time that this government started getting harder on, on China. I mean, now that at least they're starting to hit them with a limp noodle. But come on. But this is why they've got some explaining to do. That's why we need transparency. They made decisions based on China's lies and, worse, the WHO, which was also kissing China's arse, and then waited way too long to declare this thing a pandemic. And since then, they've been following every step of the WHO's advice. So, yeah, I'm sorry. There is a lot to scrutinize when it comes to the Liberal government on their COVID response. Because for them... It will reveal a lot of inconvenient truths that could hurt their Pollyanna pol polling numbers. So look, this, this shouldn't be about politics. It's always about politics. But it is about politicians at every level. They are making decisions on our behalf that have very, very real consequences. And they owe it to us. And you need to demand that they be transparent and held to account. Because you know what? We are going to pay for this for decades decades. We will talk about this throughout the show. We actually have a very busy show tonight. Uh, Patty Haidu also coming under fire because the health minister last night at Pearson Airport was not wearing a mask. Not wearing a mask. Why weren't you wearing a mask, Miss Haidu? You're the health minister. And then, of course, Sam Oosterhoff under fire for attending an event at a banquet hall with a group none of them masked up. I mean, are these people that stupid? You can't be that stupid, right? 
But of course, people want him to resign and then nothing said about Patty Hedge. I mean, give me a break. Either lead by example or get out of the way. Who owns the Markham Mansion police said was running that alleged illegal casino? And what are its connections to BC as well as a number of politicians across this country? And that would include the prime minister. Well, our global news investigative team has been digging into all the connections and learn that it's just one piece of this countrywide network that CSIS and the RCMP allege may be directly linked to the Chinese state and organized crime. And Sam Coomber, of course, has been digging into this. And as one source put it to him, quote, they see many mind blowing links between China based transnational cartels operating in Vancouver and Toronto and numerous Decadent underground casinos believed to be laundering drug cash in sprawling mansions with these imposing column-style architecture in the suburbs of Richmond Hill, as well as Markham. Sam Cooper joining us now. He is an investigative reporter with Global. This is a hell of a story, um, Sam. It's very, very detailed. But let's start it with that Markham home, you know, where 11 guns were found, a million bucks in cash, 45 people arrested. The cops tell you it's the largest illegal casino they have seen. And at the center of it is someone named Weiwei. Who is he and how does he connect to BC and possibly wide-scale money laundering? Well, there, there's, uh, you're right. There's so much going on in this story. But uh, the mansion itself is really a good visual representation of a, what what looks like a, a giant network behind it. And you would expect that if you have a 53-room mansion with marble floors. Uh, they were said to be serving shark fin soup. This is during the pandemic. And uh, my sources said it's believed that high-level state officials from China, tycoons, reportedly traveling into Canada to go to this casino. What lies behind it, uh, according to my sources, is a a transnational crime network that, uh, of course, is based in China, but uh, believed to be uh, one of the top, you know, let's just say cartels in the world with regards to drug trafficking, of course, involved in uh, alleged uh, weapons trafficking. The allegations are human trafficking. So there's all kinds of alleged crimes going on, the most serious uh, things you can imagine in organized crime. But underlying that network, the new layer here is that uh, my intelligence sources are saying, indeed, there's uh, indications of political connections, protection in China, to the point where it's mm-hmm. said that uh, the Chinese Communist Party likes to work with organized crime and use them, co-opt them in efforts to uh, politically infiltrate other countries. That is, try to influence politicians, try to arrange meetings using cash as donations. And uh, it, it really, the visual representation of these illegal underground mansion casinos, you can picture uh, meetings occurring between people that are involved in crime, business, and the worlds of espionage. And that is really the, the world that this story is trying to unravel. Yeah. And we're not talking about a few games of craps here. We're talking huge amounts of money. And of course, as you report, um, it fuels things like the drug trafficking, uh, you know, that is just a sweet, it's, it's a plague across this country, prostitution, kidnappings, gun crime. Um, and as you say, all these key players have connections to top, top you know, uh, business people, as well as politicians right across this country. But as you say, Chinese President Jinping calls it his magic weapon, which is to promote the communist interest and also, you know, influence abroad, but infl- infiltrating Western governments, which then raises questions as to how did this guy Weiwei 
get access to our prime minister, not once, but twice. And then another guy named Tiger Yuan, uh, another alleged but not charged player in uh, transnational money laundering, also getting access to prime in- the prime minister, as well as several other politicians. That's right. So what we're really seeing in this story is the same repetitive patterns in Eastern Canada and Western Canada. Alex, as you know, I I did a lot to dig into what's going on in Vancouver, B.C. and Richmond. That is this, uh, you know, alleged transnational crime group laundering tremendous money through casinos and real estate. And uh, this story showed that there's connections between people that that uh, they're so apparently highly uh, viewed in Beijing that they spend a lot of time with consulate officials in B.C. They spend a lot of time courting Canadian politicians at a dinner galas. And what this is about, it's something called the United Front Work Department. And mm-hmm. my stories have been looking at its activity where they arrange these meetings. And that is how a person such as uh, Wei Wei, an alleged uh, organized crime kingpin of a sorts for casinos can can get into meetings with uh you know one or two people away from the prime minister where it appears that you know a let's just say a more a higher level chinese official will be the one right next to the prime minister we found a donating a million dollars to the 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 pierre elliott trudeau foundation shortly after these meetings where a figure we now know is an alleged gangster is there with a chinese official and the prime minister and yes i found that a uh, a similar uh, a similarly placed individual that is uh, associated to the casino money laundering investigation uh, in BC can shake hands with the Prime Minister and be at these so-called cash-for-access meetings. So it all seems to re- revolve around political donations. That That is how people that, uh, they're not Canadian citizens, but they've got a lot of money, they can get in the room and get these meetings. Right. And then in turn, they use those pictures as propaganda in their own country. But you have very successfully laid out pictures and photos with all of these Chinese players with politicians across this country, showing the links of who they've had uh, interactions with, who they've donated money to. My question is, I mean, you know, over the weekend, uh, Mercedes Stevenson spoke with uh, John Bolton, who warned, you know, Canada's got to wake up to this because China is a severe threat to Canada and we seem to be asleep uh, you know, on this thing. But who is vetting? Who is getting in in contact with the prime minister and where this money is? And, and have there been any uh, developments as to whether that money that was given to the Trudeau Foundation, is that laundered money? I mean, are those checks being done? Well, we, we don't really have um, any substantial response yet on the, the, the donation of a, a million dollars to the foundation has been known for a few years. It was the Globe and Mail that broke that story. However, just very recently with this Markham alleged casino bust, we've seen what appears to be this direct association between an alleged kingpin and a Chinese official very shortly before a massive donation. Uh, we, we went to the Trudeau Foundation and asked, do they have any concerns? about the money? Do they have any concerns that uh, attempts at influence could have occurred? And uh, really, they said, not much to see here. I tried to reach out to the prime minister's office to see if, you know, the office could could talk about this, uh, I'll, I'll call it a mirror-like donation scenario in Vancouver. And uh, they, they pushed the question over to the Liberal Party, who again has said, uh, the individual in Vancouver and the individual in Markham has no relationship to the Liberal Party. So we're not getting much of a substantial response on what looks like a threat, according to my intelligence sources. 
And so where do the investigations go from here? Because obviously, until you started digging into this, and you have led the way on all the investigation and digging up uh, these connections, uh, you know, from the start of when fentanyl started pouring into the country and money laundering at casinos in BC. I mean, this is a countrywide problem now. Uh, Where does it go now? I mean, at some point, uh, is our intelligence going to start cracking down on this? Well, I think it's really a, a two-part uh, answer to your question. One is on the on the straight-up organized crime, uh, money laundering, real estate, fentanyl overdoses. Uh, simply, uh, Canada, we, everyone knows it's a serious problem. We also know that uh, the RCMP, we don't have the federal law enforcement capacity. Furthermore, Canada really doesn't have the laws to tackle this serious transnational organized crime. So that's one thing. I don't think anyone's disputing that. Hopefully the BC inquiry will at least lead to some prescriptions to, to deal with that side. On, on what I'm discovering and, and pointing to this, let's just call it a um, state activity or espionage potential connections to organized crime. Really, Canada, we're in a much worse position there. Canada has mm-hmm. almost no counterintelligence uh, sort of capacity to push back against uh, the interference that we know is coming from China, as uh, Mr. Bolton uh, pointed out. And, and so, you know, the FBI has capacity. Australian police, that's a very comparable country to Canada in terms of size and, and uh, values. They have capacity. Uh, Canada doesn't. So in, in simple terms, look, if I, say, if I tell you what my sources are saying, uh, they, they are really starting to understand this connection between state activity and organized crime. Canada knows what's going on. Uh, we, don't, we need more resources and probably we need some legal changes. Well, it would be nice before we actually get um, owned uh, by China. Literally, it, it's uh, it's quite something that you're you're the one, the sole guy, un, you know, unveiling all of this stuff, and we don't have a police uh, force in this country that can uh, can figure it out. Nonetheless, it's a hell of a read, hell of a investigation. And Sam, I do really appreciate you joining us. Thanks, Alex. His name is Sam Cooper. You can follow him on Twitter, Scooper Cooper. And we were li- we're literally selling our soul to the devil. And he's the one pointing it out. And yet, as you hear, we have no teeth in laws and we have no one in law enforcement who can deal with it. I mean, it's, it's actually quite staggering. Well, here's something to keep your eye on, uh, and it involves food costs, which uh, look to be about to get more expensive. And Loblaws, which, of course, made record profits during this pandemic, is increasing charges and fees to suppliers, which means not only will we get less choice, but the prices are going up. And they're following the lead of Walmart, which earlier this year said it had to increase fees to suppliers because of increased costs of expanding their online business. And so then once Walmart does this, it's expected that the rest of the big grocers follow suit. So here we go with Loblaws. And this should irritate you because these big grocers not only made a lot of money during this pandemic, but what this means is Canadian goods, we will get less of them. And you're going to get less quality, but you're going to get higher costs. Let's ask John Keogh about this. He is a founder and managing principal with Chantella. He is an expert in things like food supply chains. Good to have you, John. Hi, Alex. Great to talk to you again. 
we touched on this a couple of months back, as I recall or don't recall, but I do recall us talking about Walmart, you know, being the leader on this. And now we are actually starting to see Canadian companies, these big, you know, supermarkets follow the lead, which could lead to food shortages uh, and possibly push production to the United States. Is there an option for them not to do this? Uh, yes, uh, it's a bit of a cat and mouse uh, always. You know, one one starts and the other uh, takes over from there, as we've seen with uh, Walmart and now Loblaws. But the cat and mouse was always with uh, passing the charges on to uh, suppliers, and suppliers then would always try to regain some of that uh, uh, cost through negotiations, which were which were never uh, really successful. But the the situation we're in right now, um, you have independent grocers are complaining, and and quite rightly so, because they cannot offload their their costs. And and when you think about it, Alex, to be quite honest, everybody has COVID-19 costs right now, manufacturers and the retailers. So for the retailers to say that that's impacting their business and the need to offload those costs, I think it's really unfair. But the biggest part uh, both Walmart and Loblaws are saying this is going to fund their future investment. Well, you know what? Independent grocers have that as a cost of doing business. Well, not to mention, you know, they were allowed to stay open during the pandemic. These big, big box office grocery stores, the Costco's, all of them, they were allowed to stay open while the mom and pop local independent grocers, a lot of them got shut down. And so this seems very predatorial to me. Um, and and it's frankly unfair. I get it. It's a standard practice for grocery chains to get fees from suppliers. And then, of course, you you get uh, shelf space determined on those fees. You know, if you want good product placement, you got to pay a little bit more. But this seems very predatorial. Absolutely, I, I agree. And what's missing here, Alex, is the uh, code of conduct which the industry has called out for before. You know, mm-hmm. in the EU, they have good protection. In uh, the UK, they have good protection, and in in Australia as well. And and these codes of conduct, they set out minimum obligations for retailers in how they treat the grocers. So in other words, that there be no uh, threatening behavior or business disruptions or threats that they'll terminate their business if they don't comply with uh, with uh, with the cost uh, offloads. So it, it, it really is unfair. Um, it, we need to rebalance the uh, the playing field in uh, in Canada. And, and quite recently, the Irish government has set up a food ombudsman to actually mm. manage the market and the pricing. And this is, in fact, just in the past week, and I think that's a good move. Right. And so, okay, it's a bit of a, a, a David versus Goliath fight, though. I mean, how much pushback uh, would there need to be made in order for this to be kind of rolled back? It's it's pretty tough to go up against someone like, you know, a company like Walmart. Yeah, it's difficult to go up against the big guys. And if you look at Loblaws, I mean, they, they made $2 billion extra revenue in the first six months of this year. And as you mentioned earlier, you know, mm-hmm. significant increased profits. And, you know, I looked at their books. I looked at the books for the first six months, and there's no significant uh, cost that they've taken on board. So to have the independent or the, the, the suppliers, you know, fund their future development, that part is unfair. And I think this is where, you know, some of our politicians need to get in. And, and I'm not in favor of over-regulating markets, but I am in favor of fair practices, especially as it relates to the others, because the risk that you, you pointed out earlier is that our local producers, our local suppliers in Canada, 
they won't be able to invest. And when they can't invest, they're not going to hire people, especially in the manufacturing side. Yeah. And we know that there's probably six or seven additional jobs and salary jobs in, in a region when manufacturing jobs are created. So this pushes, uh, unfortunately, this pushes uh, production offshore. And, and that's not a good thing. Not to mention it flies in the face of this um, you know, made in Canada response. I mean, frankly, I go out of my way uh, when I shop to buy local, buy Canadian, and, and more and more so, especially given the situation with China, I go out of my way not to buy Chinese-made products. So it really bothers me that it's going to become harder to find Canadian goods. And then, of course, what we do buy, you have to pay extra for. Yeah, that, that's that's always the risk. And, you know, I would uh, if I was sitting in front of the Loblaws executives right now, I would ask them three questions. I would ask them if they have the right leadership team on board, because the leadership team they had on board last year with traditional retail is not the executives at the leadership that they'll need for the next five years, because everything has changed. Mm-hmm. I would ask them if they have the right technology platforms in place. And, and Loblaws has a tradition of making missteps in the area of mm-hmm. technology. And also, do they really understand the, the, what's, what's meant by digital transformation? Digital transformation is not just about technology. It's about the, the customer. It's about the consumer. And it's about change management. And they're the key components of uh, making that transition to the next five years. It's not our father's supply chain anymore. Right. And so how quickly will we see changes to supply chain should this uh, kind of you know because now that Loblaws goes in you see them kind of domino like will fall into line how long will it take before we start to see real price changes uh, happen and less op- you know less uh, choice well uh, what consumers are doing right now is they're buying more online and, and we know we know why they're doing that right so Loblaws has seen a 280% increase in their in their e-commerce business i think it's about 1.2 1.3 billion dollars um, but the biggest change alex that i see now is from an existential perspective the suppliers themselves are deciding to go direct to consumer, and this is significant. So we have a customer yeah. called Cisco, or a supplier called Cisco, S-Y-S-C-O. They supply the, the food service and retail, and they are now going direct to consumers, which is which is incredible. And, and you, have, uh, you have Heinz as well and several others that are moving direct to consumers. So this is going to put pressure on the retailers to kind of reflect and say, is this the right thing for us to do to be forcing these costs on these big customers or these big suppliers when in fact they do have an option to uh, to go direct to consumer? And so I think this is going to be a very, very interesting uh, a, a part to uh, of the transition to, to, to keep an eye on moving forward. Yeah, and it comes at a time, of course, when uh, Canadians are starting to really, really uh, hurt uh, as the economy kind of uh, squeezes everybody. We'll keep talking about it. John, I appreciate your insight into this. Thank you. No problem. Thank you, Alex. That is John Keogh joining us here tonight. So, hey, hey, look, the prime minister's got the power. I mean, and he's got friends over at Loblaws. I mean, they, their government gave them millions of dollars of our money to buy their uh, freezers. I'm certain if you wanted to help Canadians because he's got our backs, maybe he could make a phone call and say, guys, not a good move. But I digress. That is the sound of an OPP officer under attack in his uh, squad car 
um, by two protesters at that Caledonia blockade. And they attacked the car, allegedly, uh, with rocks and you see lacrosse sticks. And basically, they're goading the officer into a confrontation. And in the end, uh, the officer does stay put. But it, um, it was said to be in retaliation for what some Six Nation protesters claim was that the OPP had been provoking violence. But what is the solution uh, to what appears to be yet another, you know, term of escalating uh, tension in a town where tension has engulfed over the last decade and a half over land claim issues? And in this case, a development that had been negotiated over years with members of the Six Nations. And of course, a judge ordered just last week that the protesters must leave immediately. And the premier was asked about it and today said, you know, this is not acceptable but what is the solution? Because that's not going to solve things. Anne Harding is owner of Foreign Community Relations, Indigenous Relations in Canada's in Canadian content uh, and economic development with Indigenous communities and community engagement. She joins us now. Good to have you, Anne. Thanks for having me. All right. So this has been a long-standing, uh, just a simmering, boiling pot. You know, it certainly boiled up before about ten years ago with, um, you know, protesters taking over a development that, of course, was uh, taken care of by the last government, which threw millions at the problem to go away. But now here we are with another development that had been negotiated over a period of years, and now we are looking at a violence, uh, escalating violence. For sure. And and I think this isn't the only case in Canada where we see um, Indigenous and non-Indigenous communities clashing over recognition of Indigenous rights and, and land claims and treaty and title. Okay. And so what, what like, did these particular protests actually represent all of Six Nations? Because members of Six Nations were at the table. This was not just slapped together. This was negotiated over a period of years. And there were members of Six Nations at that negotiating table. So who would these activists then represent? Well, I think each person there surely represents themselves. So, so in terms of representation of Indigenous communities, and, and we see this with, we saw this with the Wet'suwet'en protesters um, it, against Coastal Gas Link earlier. In terms of who represents Indigenous communities, that's an open question. And that's a question yeah. that has not been addressed in the recognition of, of Indigenous rights in, in the country. That there are many different systems and, and sort of that complexity that goes with it. In complexity then means, you know, you can't always find a solution because what is right for one group will not be right, as you mentioned, the the LNG um, dispute, which we saw rail blockades over the, I guess it was this year, believe it or not, but uh, earlier in this year, where you had negotiated settlements with certain bands, but then a number of hereditary chiefs came forward and said, well, we didn't negotiate it. And so I think a lot of people look at this and say, well, how do you get a solution if you know, the goalposts are permanently moved by groups that say it did not um, reflect their needs and wants. Well, I think the there's a lot of pieces to it. And for, for all Canadians, I think it's about understanding a more complete story of our history. So when people talk about Indigenous rights, what does that actually mean? What do different treaties mean and, and how did we get to where we are? And there's, there's a whole history lesson we could go through that I'm sure we don't have time for today. You mean we're not um, going to solve this in five minutes? Really? No, really? I, I don't think so. <laughs> but, but Canadians do need to take some accountability, I think, to, to do the work, 
to learn our history and, and to have a more informed view of how we got to this place as a country. And, and I want to pick up on that comment around the goalposts that seem to constantly mo- be moving. This, this is what we heard around the Court of Appeal decision um, related to Trans Mountain when that came out a couple of years ago, was people said, well, what is meaningful consultation anyway? And, and the fact is that the courts have told us, the courts have told us time and time again what it looks like to have meaningful consultation and accommodation with Indigenous communities around the rights. The problem is Canadians just don't want to hear it. Governments haven't actually taken that and implemented any kind of legislation that says how we deal with that as a country. Okay, Indigenous rights exist and we recognize they're there. The courts have told us that. But what does that actually mean in a modern context for development? Governments haven't stepped up to address that question. But it is extremely tough, though, because if you have six member, uh, six nation members at the negotiating table for this, you know, the chief of six nations was was on board with this and everything was signed off on, then a, an outside group comes in. How are you ever going to get reconciliation on these kinds of deals? Or are we at the point now where we're not going to get any kind of uh, solution to these deals? Well, the elected chief of Six Nations had signed an agreement, but of course there's two leadership leadership structures within Six Nations. So the Haudenosaunee Council, up until mm-hmm. 1924, was the authority in that community. And, and so, again, this speaks to that comment of, of representation, that Indigenous communities didn't actually have a chief and council system to begin with. That was imposed through the Indian Act by the federal government. So this speaks to, it's not an outside group, there are different levels, different uh, types of representation and leadership within Indigenous communities. So where do you see this going? Because a judge has ruled that the protesters must go, but if they don't recognize, um, you know, courts and judgments uh, made, how do we see this moving forward? Where do you see it going? Well, I think we need more tools. As, as a as a country, we need more tools for applying Indigenous rights in a modern context. So when all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? So in this case, the courts the courts are the hammer. The courts are where everybody goes to. And so all we see is conflict. All we see is, well, there's only tension and, and conflict. So we don't have any tools beyond the courts to get us out of this. And so what we actually need to realize is that it's, it's not going to work to just put some new baseboards on an old house. But, you know, we need to build a new house that actually has some proactive legislation recognizing Indigenous rights and wrestling with those really tough issues of what does that mean? Because I, I don't think it means that, you know, non-Indigenous Canadians completely vacate property. But mm. it does mean that there is some proactive legislation so that we don't have all of these one-off agreements that different developers are making with First Nations, only to have them come back and, and challenge in court. Right. And then again, those in Caledonia looking at another very um, volatile, I guess, chapter. But uh, boy, it, you're right. We cannot solve this in five, six minutes, but uh, we will talk about it again because, uh, as you say, there are a number of Indigenous issues right now that are percolating, simmering, and are, in fact, I think, going to come to a head if they're not dealt with. And I appreciate your time on this. Thanks for having me, Alex. That is Anne Harding joining. So we'll keep an eye on it, but it's not as simple as the Premier saying, look, I won't accept it. It's intolerable. What we- it's just not going to be that simple. It wasn't that simple in 2006. It's not going to be that simple now. So either those in charge get their act together and figure out how to do this, or this is just going to continue on. All right. Thanks for listening. Of course, you can listen live Monday through Friday, starting 630 sharp through 10. I'm Alex Pearson on point. This is Global News Radio.